the second part of what I was supposed to do about a month ago when we were in lockdown and nobody was allowed to come to church. I preached the message on the rapture and the end times leading up to the eternal state. And what I had planned to do then, I was supposed to do two sermons in a row, but we were interrupted by getting to come back to church and enjoying Travis teaching on the joy that it is to return to the house of the Lord, and it was very fitting. But that delayed this message. But it was for the good, because I was just going to do a topical message like the last one and kind of hit some of the highlights of what heaven would be like. But because it has turned out this way, I actually have about three weeks now that we're going to spend looking at this. We're going to do an exegesis Instead of doing a topical sermon, we're going to do an exegesis of Revelation 21 and look at it the way God has designed for us to see it. And so it was a blessing to my soul to be able to do this, and I think it will result in the same thing for all of you. What I hope to do today is twofold. First, I hope to make sure or correct your thinking on what heaven will be like, what our eternal home will be like. And second, I hope to paint a good and glorious and majestic and wonderful picture of what our life will be like for all eternity so that our hearts might be a little less enraptured with the things of this world. So first, I wanna make sure you're thinking rightly about our future about our eternal home. So for a moment, I want you to close your eyes and picture in your mind, I'm gonna give you a word and I want you to think about, if you're a visual person, picture in your mind. If you don't think visually, think of details. But close your eyes and think of what it will be like or what comes to mind when I say the word paradise. What comes to your mind? Maybe it's a cabin up in the mountains. Maybe it's on the beach in Hawaii. Maybe you even think of all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What do you think about when I say paradise? Now, try to set those things aside. Close your eyes again, and I'm going to give you one more word. What comes to your mind what do you think about when I say heaven? What comes into your mind? Was there a vast difference between the two things you pictured in your mind? Jesus told the thief on the cross as he confessed Christ as Lord, said, today you will be with me in paradise. I know for me it's been a bit of reprogramming my mind to think about these things because definitely when I started this, thinking about paradise and thinking about heaven, picturing them in my mind, they were not very close together. But why is that? I mean, Scripture all throughout pictures our eternal state as a paradise. Why is that? Well, there's a couple reasons. Randy Alcorn wrote a very good book on heaven. I would recommend it to you all to read that. It is, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, and he 
tends to use his imagination a little too much. He admits that in the book, so I think that's good. But he uses a good hermeneutic to study scripture and tell us what heaven will look like. And in that book, he identifies why there is this disparity between what the Bible says about heaven, what the Bible says about heaven, and what we often think about. And he says the reason for that, and he coins this phrase in the book, Christoplatonic thinking. Christoplatonism, it's a Christianity and Platonic philosophy married together. And he explains that the reasons Christians often have this spiritual existence in mind of floating in the clouds is because of this Platonic thinking that's infiltrated Christianity. And not to get into it too much, but what this Platonic philosophy is, is it, a, it is a strong distinction between this world and the spiritual realm, or what he calls the realm of true reality. It's a strong distinction between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And Christians have long ago adopted this notion, even as early as John wrote Revelation, the Gnostic heresy was creeping up, saying that we were merely souls trapped in physical bodies, and we needed to get out of our physical bodies to truly exist. And that thinking has come down to us thousands of years later. A couple authors who have written about heaven, they say this, and I quote, only our redeemed spirits can live in a spiritual realm like heaven. Therefore, the life we know now as spiritual reality will continue in heaven, but we shall not need or desire the things associated with our present physical bodies, simply because we shall not possess physical bodies in heaven. Another author notes, when the material world perishes, we shall find ourselves in the spiritual world. When the dream of life ends, we shall awake in the world of reality. When our connection with this world comes to a close, we shall find ourselves in our eternal spiritual home. Now, if this was kind of what you imagined heaven to be like, just a spiritual realm with disembodied spirits floating around, if that's what you imagined when I told you to imagine heaven, then this message today is going to be eye-opening to say the least, maybe even a bit traumatizing. So I'm warning you now, you might, if that's you, you might want to put your crash helmet on because the Bible describes heaven and our eternal state in vastly different terms. Even from Genesis 1, God describes man as a psychosomatic union, that is spirit and body, a union of spirit and body. We are not human without a body, and we will continue to be human in our eternal home. We will have physical bodies. That was the whole point of Christ's resurrection was that our bodies would one day be resurrected and glorified as he is. So that's the first reason our conception of heaven is so skewed. The second reason is because from a very young age, we are inundated with pictures and images from our culture about what heaven will be like. I was talking with Josh this week and he he mentioned the, the cartoon when we were kids of Care Bears. You know, the bears floating around in the clouds and they've got superpowers and they, everything is happy. We are inundated from a very young age of effeminate angels in frilly wings, 
sitting atop clouds. And so we are polluted from a very young age as to what heaven is going to be like. So those images are very hard to extinguish from our minds. And just as in sanctification, we have to, in order to change our behaviors, we have to put off the bad behavior and put on the new behavior. And in order to extinguish those bad images of heaven, we need something to replace them with. We need a good picture of what heaven will be like. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 where we will hopefully have painted for us a beautiful picture of the eternal state. This is where we left off last time. We went through the rapture, the tribulation, the thousand-year reign, the defeat of Satan, and the judgment of all people. The great white throne judgment is right before this, where all unbelievers will be condemned to hell for all eternity. And right after this, John has the vision or is, records for us his vision of the eternal state, heaven. I'm going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That is our passage for this morning. And on Friday, I had all of my exegesis done for these passages, and I was planning on going through all eight of these verses. But as I worked through all of that, it was about an hour and 40 minutes long. So I'm not going to keep you here that long. I've split it in half. Okay, we're going to cover the first three verses this week. And so our outline for this morning is threefold. The first one is the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. The consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. The second point is the crown jewel of the new heavens and the new earth. And the third point is the climax of the new heaven and new earth. The consummation, the crown jewel, and the climax. So let's go back to Verse 1, and I'll read it again. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So right away, might need to do a little bit of reprogramming. Okay, generally, at least when I see this word heaven in Scripture, I tend to think of the heaven where God is right now. In the New Testament, they refer to that as the third heaven. They use this word, heaven, to refer to three things. The first heaven is the atmosphere. It's where the birds fly. It's where the clouds are. The second heaven is what we think of as space, where the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies are. And the third heaven is where God resides. It's another realm. No matter how far you get in the second heaven, you never reach the third heaven. It's another realm. And so we have to consider when it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, is this talking about the third heaven where God resides? And the answer is no. Whenever the word heaven and earth are used together, it is a unit to refer to the created order. So we shouldn't imagine God creating a new heaven where he is now. Rather, he is going to create a whole new heaven and earth as in our galaxy and the earth. We see here from John, and as you noticed as we read through that passage, he doesn't give us a whole lot of details about what the new heaven and the new earth are going to look like. And so as we read this passage, we kind of need to retrain our minds here to think of the framework that God has already given us for creation, and that is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John doesn't give us hardly any details concerning this new earth, and I think that's because he doesn't have to. We have a framework given by God already for what creation looks like. That's our framework for thinking, and I don't think John gave us any details because he didn't have to. We're very familiar with what it looks like. And so as we go through this, our framework for thinking is Genesis 1.1, when God created the first heaven and the first earth. But John does give us one detail here. It's the adjective new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now there's two words that John could have used. One of them would have emphasized the newness, as in the youthfulness, of the earth, but that's not the one he chooses to use here. The one he chooses to use here emphasizes a different kind of newness. What this word emphasizes is a superiority in kind and quality to the old. Think of the new covenant. We still call the new covenant the new covenant, even though it's not a recent thing. And that's because it is superior in kind and quality to the old the old, making the old obsolete and passing away. That is the only thing John tells us about this new heaven and new earth, is that it is superior in kind and quality to the first one. So, what does that matter? Well, what is the most beautiful place you have ever seen on this earth? Maybe it's Yellowstone, maybe it's Niagara Falls, Hawaii, even our mountains. What is the most beautiful place you've ever seen on this earth? 
in Randy Alcorn's book, he talks about the fact that we have never seen heaven apart from the curse. We have never seen heaven without the effects of death. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed this earth, it has been in a state of decay. And he likens in his book this current earth under decay to a decaying body. This earth has been decaying for thousands of years and we have no idea what it looked like in its vast glory and beauty. And so you can imagine the most beautiful place you've ever seen and that is tantamount to looking at a decaying corpse compared to the beauty and the majesty of the new heaven and the new earth. And I think there's some application here for us. We are going to spend eternity on an earth that is superior in kind and quality and beauty and goodness and every other way to this one. Now, we live in Colorado. All of us, well, most of us, love the outdoors. We love to get outside. We love to see the good creation that God has made and worship him for it and enjoy its beauty. And sometimes we can be drawn away too much into that. Living in Colorado, we could get away and do something different every weekend in the mountains. But listen, we have to temper the time that we spend in God's good creation in light of the fact that there's only this life to fulfill the mission that God has given us, to make disciples, to love God, love others, preach the word, and make disciples. This is the only life we have to do that. And if you sacrificed every opportunity you had to go to the mountains, to do whatever it is you love to do, if you sacrificed every moment of that to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to grow in your sanctification, to disciple others, you would not be disappointed in the next life if you spent every moment of this life, every opportunity you had doing that. No one, when we get to the new heaven and the new earth and look at the beauty of it, is going to look back and say, I wished I had climbed the toe on that decaying corpse of the old earth, or I wished I had explored the armpit of the decaying cave over there in the old earth. No one's going to do that. And so, temper your time that you spend enjoying God's good creation. Don't make an excuse that you're worshiping God out there when you spend every moment getting away. It is good and it is beautiful and we can get away and worship God, but we have to temper how much time and energy we spend doing that in light of our mission and in light of the fact that our new earth will be far more glorious and far more beautiful and we will enjoy for all eternity exploring it. We don't have to do that in this life. So while we are here, we have to steward our time well. Don't be drawn away and enticed by this world, even the physical creation aspect of it. While we're here talking about 
the new heaven and the new earth, I think it's appropriate also to dispel something else, another false conception of heaven. And I'll just pose this to you a question and see where you land. Will there be animals in heaven? Will there be animals in heaven? I grew up in this church and I remember people talking about there won't be animals in heaven. My question is, why not? And if your answer is, because animals aren't spirit, then that goes back to what I brought up earlier. That's platonic thinking that's infiltrated your mind. Okay? The question is, why not? If our framework that God has given us for creation is Genesis 1.1, and he's going to create a new earth, why wouldn't there be animals there? Flip with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 65. And in Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah has a very similar revelation. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you go back and read the whole thing and you're a bit confused, part of it is because there is a mixture in this passage of details concerning the millennial kingdom and details concerning the eternal state. And there's a mixture of those two things, just as there often is a mixture of details concerning Christ's first coming and his second coming. There's details concerning the millennial kingdom and the eternal state in here. But look at verse 17, Isaiah 65, 17. This is God speaking. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now look down at the bottom, at the end of this section. We don't have time to go through the whole thing. Verse 25 says, In this new created order, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You can go back to Revelation. And while you're flipping to Revelation 21, stop in Revelation 5. Commentators have noted in that passage in Isaiah that there's a mixture of details from the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. And they say that the animals must be a reference to the millennial kingdom because it's patently absurd that there would be animals in the eternal state. Many commentators just outright dismiss it. But I don't think there's reason to outright dismiss it. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. This is a throne room scene where John is. And John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne. Just remember that phrase, around the throne. And the living creatures, living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So it mentions three things here, living creatures, elders, and the voices of angels. He makes the distinction. And then we covered in chapter 6 last time, once again, a throne room scene where John sees four horsemen riding horses. So if you want to say that there will not be animals in heaven, the burden of proof is on you. 
if our framework for thinking is Genesis 1 and God's going to recreate the earth, why wouldn't there be a manifold of creatures to bring God glory? He is glorified as we look at the animals in this world for his manifold beauty and manifold creation. And I think the new heaven and the new earth will be filled with creatures of superior kind and quality to what is on the earth now. So why does that matter? Well, for one, I wanted to dispel that common notion, misconception. But second, I think there's application there as well. Many of you love your pets and your animals. And just like what we just got done talking about with going out and looking at creation, we have to be good stewards with our time and our energy when, and even our money when it comes to our animals. We have to remember that all of this world and all of this life is going to disappear and fade away. The animals on this earth will not pass into the next life. And so we have to temper our time and our energy that we give to our pets with the fact that we are here on a mission. So by all means, care for your animals, love your animals, but just be good stewards of your time and your money that you spend on them. And look forward to the day when you will perhaps have companions, that same friendship with animals in heaven who will never die. You will enjoy that same kind of thing in heaven where they will not pass away. So if you have to put your animal down or spend thousands of dollars on chemo, just be careful about that decision. Think about it carefully. I don't know if any of you here are that serious about your animals. In California, people were. My friend was a taxidermist in Burbank, and he would mount animals mainly for movies. And he told me time and time again, people in California would come in with their deceased cat and want it mounted in their favorite position so they could put it next to their fireplace. Thousands and thousands of dollars for this. Beloved, death is coming for all of us. You cannot stop it. Say goodbye to your beloved animals when the time comes. But just rejoice in the fact that one day you won't have to. You won't have to say goodbye again. So, enough of that. I think you could go through Genesis 1 and look at more creation. We could do this with a lot of different aspects, but we're going to move on in our passage in Revelation 21. Go there if you're not. So, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This verb for passed away, it's nothing special. It just means it went away. The first earth, the first heaven, the first created order passed away. It went away. There's a couple different views 
on what happens here. There's the first view that says God is going to take this earth and he's going to resurrect it. He's going to renew it. He's going to make it into a new creation like he made us into a new creation. We're still us, and yet he made us a new creation. And there's a lot of renewal language in Scripture that supports that. But there's also the second view. There's a lot of language in Scripture that indicates that God is going to completely dissolve the elements of this world, that it is going to completely pass away and it is going to exist no more, and God's going to create an entire new universe. He's not going to refashion the matter. He's going to do away with it, and he's going to recreate something new. I lean more towards the latter, that God is going to do away with this world and recreate something completely new. And I was more firmly convinced of that fact as I studied this little phrase, and the sea was no more. Many people have taken this phrase and they've attached it back to the first part, saying in the new heaven and in the new earth, there's not going to be a sea. There will be no ocean on the new earth. But I don't think that's what this is referring to. Consistently, in, John's, in the revelation here that John is writing, he uses this phrase, heaven and earth and sea to refer to the entirety of the universe. So I think at the end here, it's not attached to the beginning describing the new heaven and the new earth, it's describing what has passed away. And John is just tacking this on there to further emphasize that the created universe is no more at this point. The Net Bible translates that phrase, ceases to exist. The old earth and heaven and sea ceases to exist. So if you were discouraged about that in the past, thinking, disappointed that there wasn't going to be an ocean on a new earth, I don't think that's what that is referring to. If you love the ocean and you love walking on the beach, I am confident that in the new earth, there will be a large body of water that resembles our current oceans as we know them. It may be different, but I think there will be a large body of water. So, the old earth has passed away and God has created this gloriously new and beautiful earth. And that brings us to our second point on this new and glorious and beautiful earth, there is the crown jewel of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the capital city. Let me read verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't want to spend too much time on this because... John gets into great detail later, and that's what we're going to spend another sermon on, is the details of this new Jerusalem. But it's important to note that in this new world, it's not just a garden that God plants for his people to dwell in. He brings down this city from heaven, where he is now, for us to live on. This is what Jesus went away to prepare for us. This is it. 
And as I said, we get, to, we get the details later, but this is just his brief summary. He describes it being like a bride adorned for her husband. There are a few times in a woman's life when she wants to look better than on her wedding day. They try harder than any other time to lose weight. They pay, my sister-in-law in Texas is in this business, they pay thousands of dollars just to get their hair and makeup done for that day. They want to look perfect. And they generally do. Like a bride on her wedding day. This is going to be the most beautiful city we have ever seen. It's going to be the crown jewel of the new earth. And we'll get into more of that in a couple weeks. It's going to be a city that's more beautifully adorned than the new than the Old Testament tabernacle. It's going to absolutely take our breath away, but John interrupts the discussion about the new Jerusalem to tell us what is even better than this glorious city that we're going to live in. And that brings us to our third point. It is the climax of the new heaven and the new earth. What is going to be the best part of heaven? Let's read verse 3. Once again, the discussion of the New Jerusalem has been interrupted. And John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. So let's identify here who is speaking. John, throughout Revelation, is very clear to identify who is speaking. And over and over, it's an angel that speaks in a loud voice. And so that has led many commentators to conclude that this is an angel speaking. And it could be, but I think it's, John uses very clear language here to distinguish that, that it is not an angel. Every other time it's an angel, he says, I saw an angel speak. And there's another time where he, he didn't see anyone speaking and he just noted that there was a voice, a loud voice crying out. And that's actually at the marriage supper of the Lamb call. That's, we learned last time that's the call to the rapture. He just hears a voice, but he doesn't identify anything. Here he says the voice is coming from the throne, literally out of the throne. And in a couple of verses later, in verse 5, he identifies someone who is sitting on the throne speaking. And I think John is using very specific language here to indicate someone else is speaking, but it's not an angel. And I would propose to you that John describes this scene as such as the voice coming from the throne or out of the throne because it is the Father who is speaking from the throne. And yet it is not the visible Christ on the throne that he identifies in verse 5. For, John says in 118, the Father is invisible and no one has ever seen him or will see the Father because he is invisible. But Christ is the image 
of the invisible God, Colossians 1.5. And if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, John 14.9. We will not see the Father. Christ is the perfect physical representation of the Godhead. So why do I bring that up? Well, we're trying to paint a picture of what heaven will be like. And I think we will be able to come before the throne in heaven and we will see Christ seated on the throne and we will be able to speak to him and hear from him, but we will also hear from the Father from the throne. So what does the Father want us to hear about this new heaven and new earth? He himself says, behold. Now this word is a marker of strong emphasis. It's actually the imperative. It's the command to look. In the Gospel of Luke in 734, the religious leaders call attention to Jesus to discredit him, and they say, look at him, it says in the ESV. Look at him, or behold, a glutton and a tax collector, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They used this phrase, behold, to call attention to what they thought was of extreme importance. And here, God the Father is telling us what is of utmost importance regarding the new heaven and the new earth. And what does he tell us is the best part of the new heaven and the new earth? And he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man. He will be with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God is with man. This word for dwelling can just refer to a tent. This is the word that Peter used when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and he said, Jesus, should I make a tent for Moses and Elijah and yourself? But in the New Testament, this is most commonly used to refer to the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle that could be assembled, disassembled, moved around where God's spirit would, where God's presence would dwell among them. And it was in this temple that God first came to dwell among his people. And though the Israelites, they they fell into sin and they rejected God and they fell away, the Old Testament reveals that God is planning for a way and a day when he will establish an everlasting covenant, that's the new covenant, with his people and he will put his dwelling place among them forever. Now I think the gravity of this is often lost on us the gravity and the weight of God coming to dwell among us. And especially as Americans, I think this is lost on us because as Americans, even the poorest in our country live like royalty compared to the rest of the world, compared to many nations in the world. And because we live like kings and queens, we often think of ourselves as royalty. 
And I know, at least in my own heart, I had some repenting to do this week as I read, as I read this passage. We read this passage of God coming to dwell among us, and we tend, as Americans, to think, well, yeah, why wouldn't he? I mean, we live in the best country economically, militarily, in the world. We think this is the best place we could possibly live. And so when we read that God is going to come dwell among us, that is often our proud thought. Why wouldn't he? Praise God we don't live in a caste system like India where people are segregated according to class. And there's the lowest class of the untouchables who you can't even associate with. Praise God we don't live in that kind of society, but a society like that who would read something like this would understand the weight of the God of the universe dwelling among wretched people like us. This would be tantamount to our president or the Queen of England taking one of those untouchables from India who was a cripple, taking them into their own home, cleaning them up, treating them as their own, and letting them live with them and eat with them as their own child. So, so beloved, don't, don't let the weight of this pass you by. The fact that the God of the universe is, has sent his son to live a perfect life and die a perfect death that we might be imputed with his righteousness, that we might stand before him and dwell among him for all eternity. Don't let that eclipse the fact that we were once enemies of God, worse than those untouchables in India in a spiritual sense. God brought us into his family. And one day we are going to enjoy his presence forever. See, many people, and maybe this is you, you see the next couple verses about heaven, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. If you're someone who you just look at that, and that's what you want in heaven, you want to continue to live the way you do, but you want that you need to examine your own heart for the climax of heaven, the joy of heaven. The only thing that makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Moses understood this privilege and the importance of God's presence. In Exodus 33, right after the golden calf incident, if you remember that, Moses told God, he said, God was sending them on to the promised land and Moses said, if you don't go with us, don't send us. And essentially what Moses was saying was it's better to stay in the desert where God was dwelling with them than to go without him to the promised land. 
That's what was special about the people of Israel was that God's presence dwelt among them. And so, beloved, as we often skip over this as of extreme importance, I pray that that sinks in today, that God is of utmost importance. He is the greatest joy we will have in heaven. In John 17, 3, he says, Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of his priestly prayer. And he says, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? It's not no pain. It's not no mourning. Though that is a part of it, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the climax of heaven, beloved, standing in God's presence, knowing him better relationally, knowing him better intimately, having a more intimate knowledge. And even in heaven, I know we've said this here before, even in heaven, you're not going to be omniscient. You're not going to know everything. Even in heaven, we are going to learn more and more and more about our great God. One of the things we're going to do for all eternity is study our God better. And many theologians have noted as they've spent their entire lives studying what we have revealed about God now, they could spend lifetime after lifetime just studying what we have and never coming to the end of it. There's so much about God, and I think even in eternity, we will not plumb the depths of what God has revealed to us. Definitely not plumb the depths of what he has not revealed to us. And that, as I started in Psalm 16, is going to be the greatest joy. Psalm 27, 4, this is another Psalm of David. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to, to inquire in his temple. Beloved, what do you pray for? Is that the one, the chief desire of your heart that you seek after, that you may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord I know it's not often my chief prayer. We're so enraptured by the things of this world, the entanglements of this life. We pray for trivial things. But David here says, one thing I have asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Do you ever get tired of looking at the manifold beauties of God's creation? I know some people, they never get tired of going up to Estes Park and seeing the same thing over and over. Do you get tired of going to different places, looking at the different beauties of God's creation? 
I've seen some magnificent pictures of places in Europe and Switzerland and the Netherlands that I would love to see one day. Do you ever get tired of looking at the manifold beauties of God's creation? And listen, we're going to be doing more than this in heaven, but if all we had to do was to gaze upon the face of Christ seated on the throne, we would never grow tired of it. Just as you never grow tired of looking at the varied beauties on this earth, you will never grow tired of looking at the manifold beauty of Christ and worshiping him. As human beings, we are so enraptured and enthralled in gazing and staring at the beauties of our screens and our phones and our TVs. And just like you could stare at your TV screen with an endless supply of new content, binge watch and you never run out of content, even more so could you be enraptured just with staring at Christ for all eternity. It's not hard for us to imagine. We do that so much with our phones and our TVs. We will be so much more taken back by him. So once again with this, let this temper your time that you spend what you look at. You don't need to make a list of things you want to see on this earth. It's all going to pale in comparison to what we will see in heaven just in the face of Christ. And I would like to close with a prayer of Asaph in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, read these things, understand these things that we've talked about today. None of these things are yours. We'll get to this next week, but what is yours is death and mourning and crying and pain in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. If you are holding on to this life, maybe you love your sin. If you're an unbeliever, you do. You love your sin and you don't want to trade it for Christ. Dear friend, today, today is the day of salvation. Let go of your sin. It will only pursue you the rest of your life. It will only bring you trouble and shame and heartache. We are all familiar with it. We were once there. Do not pick your sin over Christ. He died a painful death 
on the cross so you don't have to. Turn to him today. Forsake your sin and put your faith in him. Believe that he died for you and make him the Lord of your life. And as we read today, as we started with, there is no greater joy. Whatever joy you think your sin will bring you, it doesn't even compare. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, none of us are worthy of you. None of us are worthy to dwell with you in all eternity, save for the fact that you sent your Son to take all of our sin away. And I pray, Lord, that we would we would agree with Asaph in Psalm 73 that, that we would desire nothing on this earth but you. And though our flesh would fail us, Lord, draw us back to yourself. Once again, make you the chief desire of our hearts. The strength of our heart and our portion forever. That though we have have so much to look forward to in the new earth, beauties beyond measure, far surpassing what we know here, it all pales in comparison to you. And Lord, I pray if there are any here who don't know you, I know there are, give them eyes of faith to see your beauty. Regenerate their heart that they might know you and the joys that we do. And Lord, for us who are believers, just continue each and every day to remind us of your glory and your beauty that our hearts might be enraptured with that and not the things of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.